Fair Challenging Kendi on ABC News. Vermont Issues Race-Based Vaccination Policy. And how Barry Weiss suggests we fight against cowardice. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit fairforall.org news. Last month, Fair founder Bayan Bartning appeared on Tamron Hall alongside Ibram X. Kendi to discuss his views regarding anti-racist curriculum in schools. Kendi is a best-selling author known for promoting the controversial idea that all group-level disparities are caused by racism and that the government should discriminate against individuals in order to achieve equal outcomes by race group. Bartning explained that while he believes Kendi may be well-intentioned, schools need to acknowledge there is more than one way to be anti-racist, and Kendi's race-essentialist belief system will only serve to make people more racist, not less racist. Recently, the Vermont Department of Health announced on its website that it is prioritizing COVID-19 booster shots based on skin color. People who identify as white and are younger than 65 with no high-risk conditions, are placed at the back of the line. Shortly after FAIR was notified of this prioritization, the Department of Health removed that language from its vaccination webpage and buried it deeper within the site. Now, users who create an account and identifies or lives with someone that identifies as Black, Indigenous, or a person of color, are notified that they will receive priority for a COVID-19 booster shot. People who identify as white, however, are not notified that they have been deprioritized. We have written to Vermont's Commissioner of Health, urging him to retract these racial preferences that violate the 14th Amendment. For the New York Times, Michael Powell wrote about academic freedom and freedom of expression following the recent cancellation of a lecture at MIT. Dr. Dorian Abbott, professor of geology at the University of Chicago, was scheduled to give a prestigious science guest lecture at MIT. However, last year, Dr. Abbott came under fire from students and colleagues for criticizing his department's discriminatory hiring practices. Abbott favored hiring candidates based on merit, instead of using immutable characteristics like skin color, sex, or sexual orientation. Those in favor of the discriminatory hiring practices claimed that Dr. Abbott's opinions created harm and petitioned MIT to cancel his upcoming guest lecture. MIT quickly caved to these demands by canceling the lecture, stating that words matter and have consequences. Fortunately, Dr. Robert P. George, director of Princeton University's James Madison program and founder of the Academic Freedom Alliance, invited Dr. Abbott to give his canceled talk at Princeton instead, which he did last week. For Counterweight, Helen Pluckrose wrote an article educating readers about the difference between the free expression of ideas and harassment and intimidation. Pluckrose says that while people will always have strong feelings about all sorts of arguments and ideas they come across, the proper way to deal with disagreement is through argument and dialogue. Harassment and intimidation, on the other hand, impose one view over another by circumventing the need for argument or dialogue. She further claims that while criticism is something we all sign up for when putting our ideas into the public sphere, punishment is not. When criticism of ideas is replaced with punishment for expressing them, this is nothing more than an exercise of power enabling one to ban ideas and intimidate anyone else who might be thinking of expressing them. 
According to Pluckrose, if we have a society where that is the case, we have a society in which totalitarianism is being allowed to win out over liberalism, and that must be fought by everybody who wishes to be able to speak freely whether they agree with the current ideas or not. For the New York Times, Henry Louis Gates wrote an essay about literary freedom as an essential human right. Gates believes that the freedom to interact with and write about a complex range of human experiences and perspectives is an essential part of American society. Indeed, for many oppressed minorities throughout history, the ability to put their experiences into words and bear witness to the full range of our common humanity was their only chance at enacting meaningful change. Gates is highly critical of the movement to ban certain topics in school, such as so-called critical race theory and the 1619 Project, which he views as attempts to exempt their own ideas from scrutiny. For the New York Times, Fair Advisor John McWhorter wrote about a recent dust-up at the University of Michigan after a music professor, Bright Shang, showed his class a 1965 film based on the Royal National Theater's stage production of Othello. This is because the film's lead role was played by a white actor in blackface makeup. In retaliation for showing the film, undergraduates, graduate students, and even faculty members called for Shang's removal as the course instructor. McWhorter recalls showing his own students' films depicting blackface, for historical reasons, only a decade ago, and he claimed nobody batted an eye. So what has changed since then? McWhorter believes that, in many ways, aspects of progressivism have morphed into a type of performative radicalism. On his substack, The Weekly Dish, Fair Advisor Andrew Sullivan wrote about the troubling erosion of the distinction between public life and private life, which is played out in protests across the country by activists seeking out the private homes of public figures in order to harass and intimidate them. Sullivan also notes that this behavior is not restricted to one side of the political spectrum. While showing up at people's homes to intimidate them is perhaps the most glaring example of how public-private distinction is being blurred, Sullivan points out that the internet has helped eliminate the notion of private correspondence, since everything you have ever put into pixels, however intimate or personal, exists somewhere, and it can be easily searched exhaustively forever. Sullivan believes that the way forward is to focus on our shared humanity. He states, We are all human and all hypocrites to one degree or other. Ripping away every veil that conceals us at our worst is not just cruel, it's inhuman. For commentary, Fair Advisor Barry Weiss wrote about cancel culture, censorship, cowardice, courage, and common sense. To start, Weiss outlined the tenets of a new radical and intolerant ideology that has somehow managed to take hold of our institutions, which amount to a near-complete rejection of Enlightenment values. Ideas are replaced with identity. Forgiveness is replaced with punishment. Debate is replaced with deplatforming. Diversity is replaced with homogeneity of thought. Inclusion with exclusion. But how did an extreme ideology that most Americans probably reject manage to spread so quickly and seemingly without resistance? Weiss believes there are many contributing factors, but that every moment of radical victory relied primarily on cowardice. All that had to change for the entire story to turn out differently was for the person in charge, the person tasked with being the steward for the newspaper or the magazine or the college or the school district or the private high school or the kindergarten to say, no. According to Weiss, if cowardice got us here, then it is courage that must get us out. 
In a new report from the American Enterprise Institute, Fair Advisor Robert Pondicio discussed the rise of social and emotional learning, or SEL, in K-12 education. His report illustrates how SEL has recently become a primary focus for many educators, even though neither a full or proper examination of its role nor a sufficient discussion about its practices or expectations for its effectiveness has yet been conducted. Pondicio argues that the term is vague, bland, and pseudoscientific. When deploying SEL, teachers become more than mere educators, but also take on the role of a therapist, social worker, or member of the clergy, no less concerned with a child's beliefs, attitudes, and values. These are roles that teachers may be unwilling and unqualified to fill, and many parents believe this constitutes an overstep by the schools into their children's lives. Pondicio asks, at what point does a school's concern for its students' emotional health and well-being, however well-intentioned, become too personal, too intrusive, and too sensitive to be a legitimate function of public school, and thus the state? Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate and review why you stuck around. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories or visit fairforall.org news. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.